Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 004, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It's early Friday morning, a rainy, cold Friday. That's two weeks in a row for us. And I'm in the shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama just so I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. Whew, my tools. What's up with it then? How's your week been, huh? How you doing on this Friday? About ready to slide into the weekend? I am, man. Whew, it has been a week, man. It has been a week. Busy, 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 a lot going on. And it started straight away, too. I don't know about you, but for me, Mondays are important. I know most of you are probably off on Sundays, but for me it happens to be the most demanding day of the week. Enjoyable and rewarding, yes, but demanding. Uh, So Monday mornings, I'm already a little lighter in the energy department, and it is imperative that my Monday get off to a good start, because if I'm not careful, a bad Monday can set the tone for the rest of my week. And this one, whew, this Monday was a doozy. My son... Our uh, nine-month-old has a double ear infection, both ears, because my baby doesn't have to do anything, okay? Whatever that chunky little man does, he does to the fullest. Eat, love, pray, he's going hard in the pain, all right? One ear? Nah. Nah. Not me, fam. I'm going for both. Give me both. That's how my baby talks in my mind. And let me tell you, this little dude is a happy baby, like, Seriously, our son is one smiley little guy, uh, so much so that it can be hard at times to know if he is not feeling well. That was not the case this time. On Sunday, uh, he didn't nap. Usually takes three naps a day. Didn't nap once. Wide awake like a possum in an earthquake. I was working, which meant that my wonderful wife was with the baby all day. And as I just brought to your attention, if my not-so-tiny human does anything, he really does it. So naturally, he did not sleep at all Sunday night either. Needless to say, Monday morning rolled around, and I was Googling ways to safely inject coffee directly into my veins. Uh, I stayed home with the inconsolable, crying, snotty baby whom I love. I think that's a whom situation there, not a who. Anyway, so I stayed home with the little sicko so my wife could get some work done. And uh, in the afternoon, she gets home. We go to pick up our daughter from preschool because our son has a doctor's appointment one town over. So we go as a family 
all together to an infant's doctor's appointment, which sounds like a good idea, but never actually is. On the way home, things start to get a little taxing, a little stressful. I've got an important work meeting to attend in like an hour and a half. The kids are tired. The parents are tired. Uh, we get home. We walk into the house. The sick baby is wailing like he's singing back up for Bob Marley. The four-year-old is saying she's hungry um, every 3.5 seconds demanding snacks. And I walk into the kitchen to discover that Susan, our wonky-eyed husky Australian shepherd rescue, has gotten into the litter box while we were gone and strewn cat poo all over the kitchen floor. Now, after surveying the landscape, I called the dog over to me, and though my tone was even and unassuming, she knows. She knows. She's in trouble. And she hasn't made now, but in a previous life, uh, she had a very difficult upbringing, and so she scares easily. Her bladder opened up like the mouth of the mighty Mississippi and let out more urine than I thought possible for a dog's body to contain all over the kitchen floor that was already covered in cat dung and litter. So the baby is crying, the four-year-old is crying, I'm crying, my tears were on the inside, but they still count. My wife and I clean up the mess together because for better or for worse was in the vows. I scoop and dispose, she sprays and mops, the potpourri of smells in that kitchen. Instant headache. With the drive home and the cleanup of aisle pet, I now had a measly 20 minutes before my very important work meeting, so I pick my haggard-looking self up, cobble together what's left of my sanity, and change clothes. My wife had ordered a pizza, so as I'm leaving, I give her a kiss, and I tell her that I'm cutting it close, but I will go pick up the pizza and drop it back off to you before the meeting. So I go pick up the pizza, I quickly head home, and imagine my surprise to find that my wife's car is not in the driveway. It's then that my phone rings, and who is it but my beautiful better half? Where are you? I'm picking up the pizza. Where are you? I just picked up the pizza. And that was my Monday. That's how my week began, y'all. Felt like 72 hours, not so carefully crammed, into one 24-hour period. <laughs> my week at least got better from there. Uh, someone who had a much worse week than me was a lawyer in Texas who made a courtroom appearance live on Zoom in front of a judge in real life as a cat. Did you see this? I've watched this video like 57 times. I keep, uh, I keep telling people about it. I can't help it. I can't help it. It's so funny, y'all. It's so funny. I mean, I've been, I've been telling people about this video like I'm a Mormon missionary at your door. And uh, let me tell you, this gospel is indeed good news. Uh, you want to hear it? I tell you what, let's listen to it together, my tools. Uh, check this out. It will be worth it. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in That's the, the judge. video settings. Uh, you might want to... Uh, uh, take, take we're trying look. to... We're tr can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but... Uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's, I'm here live. It's not, I'm not a cat. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Can you imagine being in front of a judge? I don't know what, I don't know what the, my favorite part of this video is. 
I mean, the the sheer panic in the man's voice. Check this out. Listen to this man when the judge comes on here at the beginning of the video and tells him that he has a filter on and he is a cat. Listen to the panic in his voice. Check this out. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to... Uh, uh, take, take we're trying to... Can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a... Oh... And the judge says, I think you have a filter on. <laughs> and my man comes on here. My, oh, sounding like Hank Hill, like this dude. Sheer panic. You got to watch this video, too, because the cat filter, he looks like a cat, but you can see his eyes, right? And even in the cat's eyes, you see just sheer panic, this man in front of a judge uh, trying to be professional. And it, it only goes downhill from there. Assistant here, she's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's, I'm here live. It's not, I'm not a cat. He tells the judge, this man, this man tells the judge, oh, I'm, I'm prepared to go forward. I bet somewhere his client is like, the heck, you are prepared to go forward. He says, oh, I'm prepared to go forward. I'm here live. I'm not a cat. Any situation where you're having to tell a judge that you are not a cat, something has gone terribly wrong. I think that's my favorite part of of the whole video is he tells this judge, "I'm I'm here live. I, I I'm not a cat." That that should be a catchphrase now. Like, "I'm here live. I'm not a cat." Uh Welcome to In the Shed with Wes Anderson. We're here live in my shed, and I am not a cat. <laughs> this man. And then check this out. The judge, uh, there's a pregnant pause. He goes, oh, I'm not a cat. Pregnant pause. And then check out how the judge roasts this man. Check this out. I can I can see that. Um, I think if you click the up arrow next to... I mean, the judge pauses for like 15 seconds. Uh, maybe not 15 seconds, that's an exaggeration, but the judge pauses. The man's like, oh, I'm not a cat. And then the judge pauses. I can see that. <laughs> like, what does this lawyer, like, what does he believe, man? Like, he might be the perfect guest to have on this show. We could talk up, we could chop up politics. We could talk about some paranormal stuff because in his mind, he is panicked that he appears to be a cat on this Zoom call in court in front of the judge to the degree that he has to actually say out loud to the judge, Oh, I'm I'm not a cat. <laughs> Yo, my Monday was hectic, right? But I ain't I ain't appear as a cat in front of no judge. <laughs> that guy's day was much worse, much worse than mine, and I, I can watch that video every day and I will laugh every single time. If you haven't seen it, uh go find it. It's all over the internet. It is, uh, all you have to do is, is type in lawyer and it's going to come up on Google as the top thing. Like, it's crazy. Uh, enough of that. Enough of that. Let's get to some corrections and comments from last week's show. It has now been 28 days and we are still awaiting our invite to this year's Bigfoot Bash. Keystone, South Dakota, where are you? It's also now been seven days that have passed and In the Shed with Wes Anderson has yet to receive an invite to this year's Bigfoot Festival and Conference in beautiful Hanobia, Oklahoma. And uh, it seems that we've got a classic case of Bigfoot Gathering VIP invite standoff going on here, which is a totally real, definitely normal, not made up thing. 
So uh, Keystone, Hanovia, who will come out on top? Uh, you can uh, contact the show by emailing in the shed with Wes Anderson at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from one of you, or perhaps both of you. Like I said, we'll bring all 60 of our tools. We'll bring the shed. We'll do the show live. We'll push that Bigfoot paraphernalia. Speaking of contacting the show, if you're hearing this, uh, contact the show. Send us an email. Uh, please make it one that we can read on air. We have gotten a few, but none that I can share on this platform, and I would love to do that. Uh, so you can email the show at, do you know it yet? That's right, at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase, no spaces. Let us know your thoughts on the stories that we've covered. Let us know where you're listening from. Share your paranormal experiences with us. And uh, we will read your audience-appropriate emails on air. I've gotten a lot of feedback about a list I put together for a previous episode. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we did a top 20 paranormal TV shows of all time. I've been pleasantly surprised to learn that many of you actually agree with my selection of Scooby-Doo as the best of all time. Several of you have also mentioned some prominent omissions. I'm hearing a lot of Supernatural and Smallville. Uh, a lot of people want those shows included in that list. Uh, I never really got into those two shows personally, but I hear you. And I do most definitely regret my omission of The Munsters. That show definitely belongs. I don't know how I left it out. It was an oversight. Um, I'm happy to report that my papa enjoyed getting to hear his West Virginia Bigfoot experience that wasn't shared on the air last week. We're blowing up in India. We're up to six listeners there, which moves India into second place behind only the U.S. of A. in number of listeners for In the Shed with Wes Anderson. And if you took my advice on Super Bowl prop bets, congratulations on your winnings. Email the show for my PayPal address because I want my cut. I want my money. Hmm, but I have my money. All right, enough of that. Let's move on to our news this week. In the world of politics, and let's hit the headlines. From InfoWars, World Health Organization absolves China of blame for COVID-19 after visiting Virus Lab for just three hours. The Federalist says, de Blasio is right. It's time to cancel Cuomo's emergency powers. Latest, U.S. hospitalizations at lowest in nearly three months, writes the Wall Street Journal. Anti-Trump Republicans face major challenge in launching third party, according to Reuters. Routers? Reuters? Routers? Reuters? Reuters? Reuter, Router, 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 Bega. Grand jury clears Buffalo, New York police accused of assaulting elderly protesters, says NPR. And a new study says Trump's health care policies killed hundreds of thousands of Americans, and that comes to us from Mother Jones. Before we move on to our other news stories, we've got to start by addressing the 6,000-pound elephant in the room. Season 2 of everyone's favorite reality TV show, Impeachment. Now, I told y'all from the start on episode 001 that we don't do sensationalism here on In the Shed. We refuse to stoke the fires of outrage. Um, at this point, there's just not a lot for us to say about Impeachment Round 2. Uh, a couple of things that we do want to highlight uh, it was reported by several media outlets that 15 Republicans were not present or left early during the proceedings yesterday. And for us, that just highlights an issue within American politics, one that we will call out every time we see it, whether it comes from the right or the left, and that's that our elected officials consistently behave in ways that the rest of us aren't permitted to behave. Like, yo, 
You've been elected. You're being paid. It's your job. Like who, who of us can just not show up to our job? Who of us can be like, I disagree with this. I do not enjoy this. I will not be there. Like that's not something that the rest of us can do. And uh, by the way, if you get called for jury duty, uh, you have to show up. So to those 15 Republicans that decided not to show up, we say do better. Do better. Uh, I don't care what it is, if it's these politicians that set virus protocols and then disobey them, uh, the politicians who are making sweetheart deals to enrich themselves, or um, just simply not being present, not showing up. It's all wrong. It's all a problem. And it highlights that bigger issue of politicians thinking that they are somehow better than us. And uh, that, that needs to change. So do I have a problem with them not showing up? Absolutely. Uh, Republicans, it's your job to be jurors. It's your job to be impartial. It's your job to show up and to sit there and to listen and to consider the arguments made. So far, the Democratic leadership is doing a good job of presenting their case. We'll see how well Trump's lawyers do in presenting theirs. Uh, no question what happened on January 6th is indefensible. It's reprehensible. It should never happen in our country again. And when a decision has been reached or something unexpected happens, we'll be sure to cover it. But until then, uh, we encourage you not to listen to the CNN or the Fox News take on the impeachment trial, but watch it for yourself. It's the only way to truly be informed. Uh, something that I hear a lot from people on the left and people on the right when they disagree with something that is happening in the political realm is that's unconstitutional. That's unconstitutional. But never do I actually hear somebody say that's unconstitutional because this is what the Constitution says. Usually they're saying it's unconstitutional because that's what CNN said or that's what Fox News said. So the only way you can truly be informed, my people, my tools, is to watch it for yourself. So I know it might not be the most riveting television, but if you want to know what's happening, turn it on on your lunch break, record it on your DVR, take a look for yourself. When something happens that's unexpected, we will be sure to cover it. But until then, uh, things have just sort of started, and that's what's going on with the impeachment. Let's move on to some happier news. Our first news story comes to us. Uh, Kodak Black offers to help kids of slain FBI agents. Kodak Black is extending his charitable streak by reaching out to the families of the FBI agents killed in the line of duty this week in Florida. TMZ has learned that the Florida rapper, fresh out of prison after his presidential pardon, had his attorney Bradford Cohen send a letter to the FBI Miami division offering to pay college tuition for the children of the two agents fatally shot in Sunrise, Florida. In the letter obtained by TMZ, Cohen says Kodak knows what it's like to lose loved ones and to grow up in a single-parent home, and he wants to make sure that the mourning families don't ever have to worry about sending their kids to college. Kodak's attorney says he has a friend in the FBI's Miami office who told him special agents Daniel Alfin and Laura Schwarzenberger each have minor children, and Cohen relayed that to KB. The agents were serving search warrants Tuesday when they were killed, and three other agents were also injured. Alfin is survived by a three-year-old child, and Schwarzenberger is survived by a four-year-old and a nine-year-old. We don't know if the families will accept Kodak's offer. We've reached out to the FBI, but no word back. Kodak's been very generous when it comes to charity, even while he was in prison. As we reported, President Trump even noted that as one of the major reasons he granted the rapper's pardon. So good for Kodak Black. He's coming in clutch trying to help out these families of these slain officers, uh, these FBI agents who died um, in a tragic manner, trying to help out the family there. 
and uh, a lot of a lot of news is nothing but bad news. We wanted to share a couple of good news stories today, and uh, kudos to you, Kodak Black, for making a difference. Another bit of good news: Alex Trebek's Jeopardy wardrobe donated to formerly homeless men. Alex Trebek's polished Jeopardy look is about to serve others needing professional attire as they try to turn their lives around, another testament to Alex's unending spirit of giving. A significant portion of Alex's onset wardrobe from the game show is being donated to the Doe Fund, a nonprofit that helps underserved individuals bouncing back from homelessness or incarceration trying to get back on their feet, especially men. A lot of those guys are looking for work and they need suits for job interviews. To that end, Alex's own suits will now be worn on their backs as they move forward. It's pretty incredible. Jeopardy honchos say all in all, the Doe Fund is getting 14 full suits, 58 dress shirts, 300 neckties, 25 polos, 14 sweaters, 9 blazers, 9 pairs of dress shoes, 15 belts, 2 parkas, and 3 pairs of slacks. That's quite a haul from Alex's closet and will help so many in need. As for how they decided what to pick, Alex's own son, Matthew, actually linked up with Jeopardy! costume designer Steven Zimbelman to make the selections and pack them up for shipment. The men are pretty stoked, and we would be too. It's not every day you can slip into a suit worn by Alex himself. Alex Trebek passed away of pancreatic cancer this past November. His amazing commitment to charity clearly lives on. That's awesome. Wanted to share a little bit of good news. Uh, a lot of stuff going on in the world today is not happy is not pleasant is not encouraging especially after 2020 and so far in 2021 uh, but there's still good there's still light that, that pierces the darkness there's still a lot that we can be thankful for uh, Alex Trebek is a gentleman and a scholar uh, in our family we would record Jeopardy and watch it together almost daily um, his passing was one of the celebrity deaths that actually affected me and got to me and uh, good for him good for him good for him and his son his family and uh, the costume folks over at Jeopardy for making a difference, and for doing something to lift others up in the world. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. We go from good news stories to good pillows. Our next story, Parkland survivor David Hogg launches Good Pillow Company to compete with Mike Lindell's My Pillow. The Parkland school shooting survivor and gun control advocate David Hogg has released his own pillow, which aims to help people sleep sweetly. His Good Pillow is an adaptation of Mike Lindell's My Pillow. On Thursday, Hogg, who's 20 years old, invited people to follow his campaign online. His reaction comes after the CEO and founder of the My Pillow brand, Mike Lindell, showed unwavering support of Donald Trump. On February 5th, Hogg took to Twitter to announce, Today we started a pillow company. Tomorrow we changed the world. He also states, Mike the My Pillow guy, this pillow fight just got very real. Following the school shooting in Parkland City, Florida, which left 17 victims dead, the shooting survivor has made a stand against the use of automatic weapons. He's also been a strong advocate against the far right. The website will be up in a couple of weeks. We're very much in the early stages right now, Hogg said. But we really are doing this. If you have a cool name idea, DM me. We think we have one, but we're still open. There are both positive and negative remarks when it comes to the idea of starting a new company against Mike Lindell, the face of the MyPillow brand especially when looking at the fact that he was disenfranchised from his position. Hogg appears to be speaking out against these reactions upon teaming up with William Legate, a progressive tech entrepreneur, as the two worked to create the new pillow. According to the Associate Press, Twitter banned Lindell after his continuous promotion of baseless claims of election fraud. A Twitter post by Hogg supports the claim of the good pillow statement. We can and will run a better business and make a better product 
all with a more happy staff than Mike the Pillow Guy while creating U.S.-based union jobs and helping people, Hogg said. We also hope to hire formerly incarcerated people, vets, and the workers from MyPillow in case we put them out of business. Upon hearing the information, Mike Lindell reportedly commented on the claims. Lindell told Axios, good for them. Nothing wrong with competition that does not infringe on someone else's patent. The debate is a continuous matter that will be watched as more comment on the subject, including both Lindell and Hogg's viewpoint, is brought to the forefront of the release of the pillow. Very interesting. Very interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. We got a little bit of a pillow fight on our hands, people. My pillow or the good pillow? Who will help you sleep better? Because really, at the end of the day, that is all I care about. I don't really much so care about the political views of the people I buy my pillows from. Uh, but good for this guy. Good for David Hogg. He's 20 years old. Uh, he's already done a lot of activism, a lot of um, gun gun control type things uh, in response to being a survivor of that school shooting. And uh, now he's stepping into business world, stepping into the business world with his pillow. So uh, let us know if you have a my pillow. Let us know if you have a good pillow. Who will you support? What will you do? Email the show. Let us know. In the Shed with Wes at gmail.com. In the Shed with Wes at gmail.com. That's the type of news coverage you get here on In the Shed with Wes Anderson. Talking pillows. Who else is talking pillows on this Friday morning? Not a soul. But you and I together in my shed. Yeah. You come here for the real news. And we give it to you, unfiltered, unedited, with noises in the background like construction happening down the street. (laughs) Our last news story in the world of politics comes to us this week. Biden's son-in-law faces conflict of interest concerns following coronavirus response investments. The White House has pledged to bar President Joe Biden's family from using the office for personal gain, but questions are being raised by good governors, governing, easy for me to say, by good governance is the word, groups and news outlets about whether an investment firm co-founded by Biden's son-in-law could present a new set of ethical challenges for the administration. On the campaign and now at the White House, Biden has faced questions about whether his son Hunter or his brother Frank could pose conflicts of interest over their business dealings. But now, Biden's son-in-law, Dr. Howard Crane, is facing scrutiny as well. Crane, who married Ashley Biden in 2012, is a head and neck surgeon and the chief medical officer of healthcare venture capital firm Startup Health. Throughout the years, Crane has advised Biden on a variety of healthcare issues. His firm called him an advisor to the then-vice president's Cancer Moonshot Initiative, which was started in the wake of Beau Biden's death due to brain cancer. Crane's advisement continued when Biden left public office, serving on the Biden Cancer Initiative's Board of Directors from 2017 to 2019, according to his firm's biography. And according to multiple news reports, Crane was among those advising Biden's presidential campaign on its health care policies during the coronavirus pandemic. ABC News reported Tuesday that the CEO of the boutique tech firm Yossi Health sought the assistance of Crane and Startup Health, one of the company's early investors, asking Startup Health to introduce their software aimed at streaming coronavirus vaccine efforts to government health officials. Yossi Health CEO Harry Prasad told ABC the goal of working with Startup Health was to leverage their relationships and work with state and federal agencies. Startup Health has also invested in dozens of other healthcare companies involved in coronavirus pandemic response, 
according to its website. The firm has also highlighted Crane's ties to Biden since Inauguration Day. A February 2021 newsletter email, the firm says, reached a targeted audience of more than 45,000 health industry decision makers, linked back to a 2016 blog post written by Crane about Moonshot Initiatives. The blog post is topped with an image of Crane speaking at a podium with then-vice presidential seal as Biden stands to the side and leads with Biden's comments about how his cancer moonshot initiative is a matter of life and death. The potential conflicts posed by this situation are orders of magnitude less severe than the pervasive corruption of the Trump administration, but the potential problems are real. President Biden and his administration should take proactive measures to prevent foreseeable problems going forward, Robert Weissman, president of the liberal watchdog group Public Citizen, told CNN. He added that Biden should not engage in conversations with Crane about health policy, nor should others in the Biden administration. Jennifer Hankin, chief of staff at Startup Health, said Crane's role at the company is only to provide a clinician's perspective into our mission to transform health. Dr. Crane does not make investment decisions at Startup Health, nor does he advise or assist companies in obtaining government contracts. A White House official told CNN last week that there is currently a process in place that involves the White House counsel office and family representatives to address issues as they may arise about any questions of potential conflicts of interest. In responding directly to the stories about Crane, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters Tuesday, The president has made clear that there will be an absolute wall between him and any business connected with his family members, and no family member is going to have an office in the White House or be involved in any government policy making. That applies to his son-in-law and applies to every single member of his family. There's not a single member of the family who is employed at the White House, will have an office in the White House, or will benefit financially, she said. The conflict of interest questions raised about Biden's family follow a presidency widely known for apparent and self-dealing nepotism. Then-President Donald Trump installed his daughter Ivanka and son-in-law Jared Kushner into senior White House roles. Throughout his years in office, Trump faced scrutiny for frequently visiting his own properties during his off time, proposing his own property for a global summit, and his indifference toward the potential conflict of interest involved with foreign government officials spending time at his hotels. Josh Kushner, Jared Kushner's brother, faced scrutiny for the potential conflicts posed by his firm, Thrive Capital, and the company it backed, Oscar Health. The Atlantic reported that last year, as Jared Kushner was leaving what some outlets dubbed a shadow coronavirus task force, that Oscar Health developed a website at the government's request to help Americans find coronavirus testing sites. The site was later scrapped. Scott Amy, general counsel at the Project on Government Oversight, told CNN that the Trump administration set the bar very low, allowing family and associates to cozy up to federal jobs and lucrative contracts, and Biden isn't coming into the White House with a clean slate. In order for the White House to successfully shut down Biden family and associates' advertising closeness to the Oval Office, the president, senior officials, and agencies will need to build appropriate firewalls, prevent special access, and not share any sensitive government information with family and friends, Amy said. Biden pledged in an interview with People magazine last week that the Biden White House is going to run this thing like the Obama-Biden administration. No one in our family, an extended family, is going to be involved in any government undertaking or foreign policy, he continued. But since Biden's days in the Obama White House, he's acted favorably toward Crane's firm, and conversely, Crane's firm has sought to highlight its connection to Biden. Crane told the Philadelphia Business Journal in 2015 that Biden helped bring him and the business partners, including his brother Stephen Crane, into the Oval Office for a meeting with President Barack Obama. I happened to be talking to my father-in-law that day, and I mentioned that Steve and Unity were down there, Crane said at the time. 
Biden knew about Startup Health and was a big fan of it. He asked for Steve's number and said, I have to get them up here to talk with Barack. The Secret Service came and got Steve and Unity and brought them to the Oval Office. Days after Obama announced a cancer moonshot initiative during his State of the Union address, Crane, separated only by Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, sat near the vice president for a roundtable kicking off the program. In 2016, he accompanied the vice president to the World Economics Forum in Switzerland and to meet with Pope Francis at the Vatican to discuss the moonshot initiative. And in his final days in the Obama White House, Biden spoke from behind the vice presidential seal to deliver remarks at the firm's annual Startup Health Festival. Biden also spoke at the firm's festival after he left the Obama administration. Startup Health has also developed its own moonshot initiatives and at times has tied its efforts directly to Biden. In an email newsletter sent after Biden's remarks at Davos in 2016, Startup Health solicited pitches from entrepreneurs related to cancer moonshot work. This week, Vice President Biden delivered the keynote address in Davos during the World Economic Forum and discussed one of the most important missions of our time, curing cancer, and challenged experts to share data, the company's newsletter read. Startup Health is honored to support this moonshot. We are working to organize an army of entrepreneurs who can help. If you're a startup focusing on solutions that can help end cancer as we know it, we'd like to meet with you. Tell us about what you are working on now. Startup Health has sought to highlight Crane's familial ties to Biden over the years. A now-removed website post from 2013 on StartupHealth.com reads, Startup Health CMO Dr. Howard Crane tours Asia with Vice President Biden. One image on the post, obtained through the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine, shows then-Second Lady Jill Biden with Crane and Ashley Biden posing with a group in India. Another image shows the second couple with Ashley and Crane in Singapore. Yet another image shared by the company's Twitter account in April of 2016 shows Crane exiting what appears to be Air Force Two, flanked by two military officers. Officers. I've been messing up that word today, haven't I? The caption reads, Startup Health Chief Medical Officer Crane on the road supporting Vice President Biden's Cancer Moonshot Initiative. There's no two ways about it. This is a problem. This is not a good look. As you can hear, the rainfall has started to uh, pick up, but we are in the shed. We are safe. Uh, This is not a good look for the Biden administration at all. Uh, I told you we would always keep it real with you here on In the Shed. Uh, We're not partisan. We're just factual. If you do not live in an echo chamber, and if you are being honest, there are good things and bad things about every presidential administration. Um... You may not like President Trump. You may have found him to be abhorrent. Um, I certainly did not agree with all of the things that he said or did, Um, but I am a reasonable human being, and I can say that there were some things he did that were good. Uh, For example, he signed into law the First Step Act that freed 14,000 people uh, who had unjust prison sentences. That was an objectively good thing. Uh, Whether or not you think the man himself was good, whether or not you think that Um, he had very much to do with that. He signed it into law, and I'm glad that he did. With President Biden, the right complains about executive orders. Oh my gosh, executive orders. He signed so many executive orders. But we shared with you a show or two ago about an executive order that he signed that was a wonderful thing. An executive order directing the Justice Department not to re-up contracts with federal prisons that were for profit. So no matter 
who the politician is, no matter what you think of them as a person, whether they're on your team or not, whether you voted for them, supported them. The truth is every president does some things while in office that are good and some things in office that are bad. It may be much more bad than good or much more good than bad, depending on your perspective. But this is certainly concerning, and it is an example of something in politics that is not good that we will call out every time we see it, whether it is from a Republican or Democrat or Independent. When we trust you with the nuclear codes, when we elect you to the highest office in our nation, you can't even have the appearance of impropriety. You have to get rid of all nepotism. You cannot use your position to enrich yourself or your family. I will grant you that this case is a little different than some of the others because the president's son-in-law is actually a doctor and he is not necessarily being granted um, something that he could not possibly have been involved in otherwise because of his father-in-law's position. However, given concerns already expressed about President Biden's family's business dealings uh, while he was vice president and even during the campaign process now, uh, this is something I would think that the, the president and the White House would not want to be involved in. It's, it's not a good look. Uh, we've got to get rid of these politicians that use their platform to, and their connections to make money, um, to enrich themselves. That is not being a public servant. Uh, it's not helpful for America. Um, Dr. Crane, maybe you do a great job, but your folks can't be making money off of the coronavirus rollout. Like, just it just can't it can't happen. Um, President Biden's got to put a stop to this. He's got to nip it in the bud. It would be wrong if it was Donald Trump. We shared the story with you about Jared Kushner's family having their debt paid off by a foreign country. That was a problem, and this is a problem also. It is really coming down. It is pouring outside now. I'm glad I am in the safety of this shed. After recording this episode, I may have to build an ark to get out of here. But let's move on to the world of sports, and let's hit the headlines. Tom Brady to have minor knee surgery following the Super Bowl win. Urban Meyer defends hiring controversial assistant coach. Steph Curry scores 40 points a week after netting 57. Trey Young fined $20,000 for a protesting late-game no-call against the Mavericks. The Toronto Raptors will finish the season playing in Tampa. Notre Dame and Florida State schedule each other for the 2031 and 2032 seasons, if that's a real thing. And Iowa State extends head football coach Matt Campbell's contract through 2028. For our first story in the world of sports, we're going to do something that we said we would probably never do on In the Shed. We're going to go to Major League Baseball. That's right, we're starting with a baseball story. No, we're not going to talk about Trevor Bauer. We're not going to break down the pitching rotation of the Atlanta Braves. And we're not going to do way too early World Series winning odds. But instead, we're going to start with this guy. Someone who's not native to the United States and who's trying to get in to the game of baseball. And this is what he has to say about that process. Watching now a little bit your baseball here in America. This game is the most confused game of that I'm knowing. I enjoy football. You say soccer. We have a ball. We have a net. We have a net. Kick in, boom. You kick it. Did, did ball go in net? Boom, point. We are finished. 
next time. Now we go again. Ball, ball, point, ball, net, net, ball, net, done. No baseball. Oh, okay. We have we have some we have some pillows. We have some pillows on the dirt, and then we have some grass, and then we have people to stand all around to make a grabbing of the of the downstairs grab of crowd. Look around, look around. Then man with stick is there, and then man look at stick man. And look at man with glove, and he make like this one for like I don't like one minute with a man, and then then he boom he throw throw a ball to the stick man, and the stick man may hit if he make a miss of three times then out, but if four times the the but the throw is bad boom then he may walk to a pillow. Or if he make a hit of ball, go to the side of those paints, then it is a more more hits and hits and hits. But if he hit a ball very far, then he may run on all the pillows around the pillows. And sometimes someone is stealing the pillows, and sometimes a man is. If you hit a man with the ball, then he may run to the pillows. And many people they, and the boys, the boys, the boys in the in the in the in the uh, trench. They sit in the trench and they look around and they and spit, 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 and the hat, and then clap, clap, and spit, spit, and then they run, then they run to the field, and then they make a trade in nine times, but time out on the seven after seven times of run on field, everyone sing a song about popcorn. That gentleman gets our show. That gentleman, I don't know if if that video is legit. I haven't researched it. I don't know if it's a comedian trying to be funny. Uh, whatever it is, it is the best description and explanation of baseball that I have ever seen. The man gets it. I grew up on the sport. I played the sport. I enjoyed it. But he has listed for you the reasons that we will never, other than now, talk about baseball on this show. <laughs> I love I love the pillows. The, if you hit the ball far, you run all the way around the pillows. Love it. So let's move on to our real first headline in the world of sports, and that is Super Bowl 55. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers win over the Kansas City Chiefs with a score of 31-9. to Now, we said that the Bucks would win. We were all in on the Bucks. We have been since the beginning of the season. I chose them as my team. I said that they would win, and they did. Uh, we predicted last week in our Super Bowl extravaganza preview that the Bucks would win 27 to 23, and they outperformed even our expectations. I told you that the Bucks would be able to run the ball. I said that JPP and crew would put pressure on Patrick Mahomes, that Tampa Bay's young secondary would step up, and that Tom Brady would do just enough to get his seventh Super Bowl win at home. And humble brag, we were right. Yeah. We were right. You want to know the real? You want to know what's going on in the world of sports? Hey, hey, shawty, come come in the shed. There's plenty of room in here for you guys. Come come out of the rain. Come into the shed. We keep it real. 85% of experts picked Kansas City. We told you to go with the Buccaneers, and we were right. Here on In the Shed, our Super Bowl prediction record stands at 1-0. and oh. A perfect 100% correct. Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich coached a great game. 
but Todd Ulysses Bowes. I don't know if that's his middle name, but it sounds right. That man put on a coaching clinic. His defense was well prepared. Um, they had been getting better and better all season, and especially in the playoffs, and everything came together for them. Um, they made Patrick Mahomes look ordinary, and uh, his game plan was phenomenal. Uh, Gronk, the ghost, I called him last week, I said the ghost of Rob Gronkowski. Boy, was I wrong. Gronk outperformed Travis Kelsey, and by the way, did you know that they are actually the same age? I found that out, and that shocked me because Kelsey is in his prime, and Gronk had already retired, but uh, Gronk outperformed him. Carlton Davis and crew in the secondary, my boy from Auburn, Carlton Davis, um, they stuck with Tyreek Hill like he was dating their little sister or something. They didn't give him any room. They kept him in front of them. They let uh, Mahomes throw to Kelsey and other receivers short, but they, they, removed, they removed the Chiefs' best weapon from the game. Um, I think that the Buccaneers have a chance to repeat next year. That is a really difficult thing to do in the NFL, probably than any other professional sport. And that's one of the main reasons that we went with the Bucks is because uh, of how difficult it is to repeat. I wasn't sure that the Chiefs, even in the Super Bowl, would be able to do that. Uh, the Bucks do have a chance. They need to bring back Shaq Barrett. They've got to keep that offensive line in place, that, that line that protected Tom Brady so well throughout the playoffs. Uh, and really, they're going to have to convince a couple of their offensive pieces, uh, especially a wide receiver, to take less money and stay in Tampa with a chance to win. And if I know anything about Tom Brady, I think that there is a high chance that they're able to do that. Um, but even if they can't, even if they lose a couple of key offensive pieces, uh, the truth is there's going to be guys lined up, free agents in the offseason, who want to come to Tampa Bay, who want to play with Tom Brady, who want to play under Bruce Arians in a player-friendly system, uh, who like the warm weather of Tampa, and who want a chance to win the Super Bowl. We gave you three guarantees when it came to prop bets. We told you that uh, the longest field goal would be over 47 and a half yards, and we were right. The very first field goal of the game was 48 yards, so if you listened to us there, you won that bet. We also told you that Patrick Mahomes would not throw a left-handed pass, and he did not. And we told you that the game would not go into overtime. So if you took our three prop bets and made a parlay out of them, you have made a lot of money. And if you give it to us... We can put it towards buying the Lizzie Borden home and renting that sucker out. Bed and breakfast. Let's go. One of the best parts of the Super Bowl, of course, is the Super Bowl commercials. There were actually some really good ones this year. Now, everybody that I have talked to has disagreed with this, but we want to share with you the best Super Bowl commercials, in our opinion, here at In the Shed with Wes Anderson. Uh, our top five Super Bowl commercials... Like I said, nobody agrees with me, but in my opinion, these were the top five that I saw. Uh, number five, the Rocket Mortgage Certain is Better commercial with Tracy Morgan. I find Tracy Morgan to be hilarious. I know some people think that he is obnoxious. I agree, but that's what makes him funny. He's loud, and uh, he, he, he's just goofy, man. He's like me. That dude is goofy. I like Tracy Morgan. Rocket Mortgage commercial at number five. Number four, the amaz amazing the Amazon Alexis Body commercial with Michael B. Jordan. Uh, that was pretty funny. I thought that that was pretty good. Uh, the husband being all jealous of Alexa because it was Michael B. Jordan. That was a good, a good twist there. Number three, the George Costanza, I think it was a Tide commercial. Is that right? The one with George Costanza from Seinfeld where the dude was wearing the sweatshirt with George's face on it. And every time he would do something, uh, George would make a facial expression on the sweatshirt because it was getting dirty. I like that commercial. Number two, the Jeep commercial. 
Now, a lot of people online did not enjoy this commercial. They found it to be pandering. Uh, when you're trying too hard to be inspirational, it usually is not inspirational. However, we are in desperate need of good news and good messages. And that was a positive message, and I enjoyed it. You know, it is time for our country to unify. We do need to come back together. I thought the Jeep commercial was pretty good. That's number two on the list. And for us, the best Super Bowl commercial of 2021 was the Ashton Kutcher Mila Kunis Shaggy Cheetos commercial. The It Wasn't Me commercial. Uh, Ashton Kutcher's singing voice was terrible. I really like Mila Kunis. They're always good together. And then for Shaggy to make the guest appearance and pop out and start singing, um, that was pretty funny too. So that that's our top five Super Bowl commercials. Rocket Mortgage, Certain is Better. Amazon Alexa's Body. The George Costanza Tide commercial. The Jeep commercial. And the Ashton Kutcher Mila Kunis Shaggy Cheetos commercial. What was your favorite? What was your number one? What was your top Super Bowl, Super Bowl commercial this year? Email us at in the shed with Wes Anderson at gmail.com and let us know. Um, I'd like to hear from you. So let me know what you think were the best commercials of this year's Super Bowl. Our last sports story that we want to cover this week is something that has popped up in the news over the last 48 hours, and that's the possibility that Russell Wilson will be traded from the Seattle Seahawks. Can this be real? There's a lot of movement this offseason, or at least a lot of projected movement when it comes to quarterbacks, even prominent quarterbacks. Deshaun Watson has famously asked for a trade from the Houston Texans. The Philadelphia Eagles are looking to move Carson Wentz. Uh, there's rumors that the Raiders will move Derek Carr, and of course Matthew Stafford has already been swapped for Jared Goff. It will not get any better for Seattle than Russell Wilson. The truth is... Um, the whole time that he's been there, they just have not protected that man. It's not that they haven't tried. Uh, I think they've drafted a, an offensive lineman in the first four rounds for the last several years, but they've whiffed. I mean, they have whiffed. Uh, they haven't signed the right free agents. They haven't drafted the right players. And since he has been brought into the league and become a starting quarterback, Russell Wilson has been hit and sacked more, I think, than any other quarterback in the league. Um, there's no reason for it. They have never really fully embraced him. I don't know what the deal is with Pete Carroll. I know he's a defensive-minded coach. He likes to run the football. But you've got one of the best quarterbacks in the league, like top three or four quarterbacks in the league, and you haven't turned over the keys of the offense to him yet. He's won you a Super Bowl, Super Bowl should have won you two, and yet you've never fully embraced him. Russell Wilson is the best quarterback in recent history not to win a regular season MVP. And if the Seattle Seahawks trade him, it's going to be a huge mistake. It's going to be a huge mistake. There's a lot of tension between the two parties. Um, word is that Russell Wilson is not happy with the level of protection and the offensive weapons that he's been provided. He said as much on a couple of uh, interviews, one on the Dan Patrick show this last week, and uh, reportedly that made the Seattle front office, front office uncomfortable. It kind of upset them, and so there's a lot of tension there. Who knows if Seattle will actually go through with trading him. Um, they would be crazy to do it, but crazier things have happened. Uh, one team to watch, the Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders. If there's any team that's going to find a way to trade for Russell Wilson, it might be the Las Vegas Raiders. They've already reportedly been ready to move on from Derek Carr. What if they put a package together? Just bear with me. Derek Carr and their star tight end, Waller, for Russell Wilson. 
Who says no? I don't think John John Gruden would be opposed to that. He would get a quarterback that he can finally uh, work with to a degree that Derek Carr is not capable of. He could expand his offense, and Seattle would get a above-average quarterback as well as a star receiver for Russell Wilson. Uh, now, I, if I'm Las Vegas, I'd, I'm not ready to get rid of our tight end just yet. He's one of the, the best probably four, five tight ends in the league. He's a star. Uh, but if you have an opportunity to get Russell Wilson, I mean, that's franchise changing. They've already got John Gruden signed to a $100 million 10-year contract. He's there. They've already made some key trades and additions. They've drafted really well. They've improved. Russell Wilson might put them over the top. So will Seattle actually trade Russell Wilson, or will the two parties get in a room together? Will things calm down? Will they find a way to make the situation more amicable? Uh, who knows? But it will be interesting to follow. That's all this week for the world of sports. Let's move on to the world of the paranormal. A lot going on in the paranormal news this week. A lot to cover, some really good stories. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of like the rain falling as we get ready to talk about the world of the paranormal. This bright day has turned into a rainy day. It's a little dark. And uh, you might be like, dude, why are you still recording this podcast? We can hear the rainfall on the roof of the shed. Why don't you just pause, come back and finish later? Because that's not how we do things at In the Shed with Wes Anderson. I have children who are at school. Today is my off day. This is our window. This is the only show in America that discusses politics, sports, and paranormal news, no matter what's happening outside of the shed. You might hear dogs barking. You might hear police sirens. You might hear construction work. Or you might hear a thunderstorm. But either way, we're going to get you the news that you look forward to hearing every week, especially all of our wonderful listeners in the nation of India. So for our first story, we're going to go to the past, or is it the future? Our first story is the incredible story of Al Bielik, the man who traveled through time and space. According to popular legend, in 1943, the U.S. Navy undertook secret experiments based out of the port of Philadelphia. These experiments were designed to put Einstein's unified field theory to practical use by making a naval ship invisible. While conspiracy theorists debate the existence of the Philadelphia experiment, one alleged survivor of the scientific outing, Al Bielik, maintained that the Navy's purpose was entirely different. According to Bielik, the true purpose of the Philadelphia experiment wasn't invisibility at all, but it was time travel. Ooh. In 1990, Bielik claimed that he spent time in two separate periods of the future only to return to the present and to tell his story. And that was just the beginning of the fantastic revelations of this totally, completely, absolutely, 100% not fake time traveler. As if someone would make that up anyway. A peculiar child by his own words, Al Bielik was born in 1927 to an otherwise wholesome family. He says his first memory came at a Christmas party when he was just nine months old. He found he was able to fully understand the adults talking in the room around him. Growing up, he says he was known as a walking encyclopedia, easily distingu distinguishing himself among his classmates. As a young man, duty called, so Al was compelled to join the Navy to help fight the Nazis. It was here that Bielik took his first trip through time. According to Bielik, he was just a lowly naval officer serving aboard the USS Eldridge in 1943. 
In later years, the Eldridge would become famous for supposedly harboring the Philadelphia experiment. One day, August 13, 1943 to be exact, Bielik and his brother were subject to some of the odd happenings. They jumped to safety, only to land in the year 2137. While in 2137, Bielik was treated for radiation injuries through a highly advanced series of treatments that relied on vibration and light. What's more, the entertainment in the hospital was solely educational and news programming, the only choice of TV in the entire world. Imagine only being able to watch the news. When Bielik landed in 2137, he discovered that geographical shifts had transformed the globe. The coastlines of every continent had changed dramatically. Florida had disappeared except for the panhandle, easily the worst part. That's what the article says. I don't agree. I love you, panhandle. The Great Lakes were just one Great Lake. Atlanta was three miles from the Atlantic Ocean. In 2137, Bielik said that the United States infrastructure had been completely destroyed. The central government was a total thing of the past. Both Canada and the U.S. were gone, ruled over with a kind of locally enforced martial law. According to Bielik, around 2005, the United States and Europe had banded together to fight off the combined threat of China and Russia. To my knowledge, that did not happen in 2005, but we continue. The resulting war killed billions of people. The total population of the world will only be 300 million and essentially ruined the world's governments. Again, I do not know about that, but maybe it happened in an alternate reality. From there, Bielik says he was sent forward to the year 2749. There he stayed for two years before being transported back to 2137 to pick up his brother. Why did he leave his brother behind? In 2749, the world had adapted the technology to build mobile floating cities. Government of any kind was non-existent. Everything was run by an AI called the Synthetic Intelligence Computer System that worked telepathically. Bielik stated that there were no wars in 2749 because, according to him, wars were practically impossible. There were no military or soldiers, navy, or any air force, so any conflict between countries was irrelevant. Bielik reported that no one needed money in 2749. Simply, there was no need to have it. Everyone had their own credits, which allowed them to buy everything they wanted or needed at any time. So at this point, Bielik is sent back from 2749 to 2137 to pick up his buddy. He just keeps getting sent from place to place just to pick people up. I would want to time travel for more important purposes, but alas, we continue. From there, the duo are transported to 1984 where they meet Dr. John Von Neumann, who convinces the two men to travel back to their original time, 1943, in case you're lost, and stop the Philadelphia experiment from ever happening. The two men agreed... They went back, and they got the job done. Way to go, Al and unnamed buddy. I mean, going back and getting the job done, you know? Like, way to go. After his time in the Navy, Bielik completed his education in electronics. Soon, though, he found himself contracted out to various military contractors who slowly took the young electronics whiz into their confidence. They revealed to him that the U.S. military was actively involved in adapting alien technology and forwarding research on psychic operation. Soon after, Bielik was recruited by the Montauk Project. Though Bielik was working a job in California, his importance to the Montauk Project was so great that he was given access to the super-secret network of high-speed trains running under the country. 
This allowed him to work his normal job during business hours and then moonlight in Montauk for the government. Isn't that what uh, Elon Musk is up to? And he trying to build them trains that go like from city to city underground and all that kind of jazz? Maybe he was doing it the whole time we ain't know about it. I don't know. Of course, once the time tunnel was perfected, he could just teleport back and forth, obviously. Throughout the 1970s, Bielik was the program director for the psychics who worked in Montauk. In that capacity, Bielik exerted considerable control over the project and was even afforded some first-rate business trips. Bielik went to Mars on several occasions. He remembers several other trips he took with the team to a research station in 100,000 BC, other planets to get canisters filled with light and dark energy, and to the year 6037. Once Bielik went public with his extraordinary adventures, the government sadly disavowed him. How predictable. They didn't even do him the dignity of calling him a crazy kook. They simply let him lecture and talk because, well, maybe he was a crazy old man. Bielik believes he has not been harmed or stopped because his time-traveling experiences locked him into this timeline. Somehow, by being here today, he, among others in the program, served to balance the effects they produced from prior time-traveling experiments. It just so happened that the time travel to which Bielik was subjected to in 1943 sounds an awful lot like the setup for 1984's The Philadelphia Experiment, a movie in which a couple of sailors serving aboard the USS Eldridge are flung forward through time. Admittedly, Bielik's story differs pretty substantially from the plot of that movie, but he did have about six years to flesh out his backstory once he got some inspiration. In the years since Bielik's confession, the conspiracy community has been abuzz with his reputed version of the events. Of course, his story has drawn some criticism even among his own. Can we call them colleagues? For instance, one site has devoted countless hours to proving that Bielik had nothing to do with the Philadelphia Experiment after all. The site that debunks Bielik's stories doesn't refute the fact that the Philadelphia Experiment happened, only that an exhaustive line-by-line inspection of Bielik's entire history of speeches was needed in order to prove he had no part in it, because Bielik's story was so airtight otherwise. If you're unfamiliar with the whole Philadelphia Experiment thing, there's much more to the cover-up than Bielik's story. In fact, most people think that the original Philadelphia Experiment idea came from a man named Carlos Allenday, who wrote a series of particularly eloquent letters to writer Morris K. Jessup in 1956. Allenday's version of events cast Einstein as a bit more of a mad scientist type than history remembers. According to Allenday, Einstein used the U.S. Navy to accomplish his own ends. The government itself reportedly had no clue that time travel experiments were being done. Allenday was all too happy to confess that the whole thing was a delusional hoax later in life. Bielik died on October 10, 2011 in Guadalajara, Mexico. Al was 84 years old and was buried at a local cemetery in Guadalajara. Al Bielik's birth certificate is dated March 31, 1927, but whether he was born on that date or not depends on how much of Al's story you're willing to believe. He's always maintained that his real identity is that of Edward Cameron, son of a career naval officer, and that he had been regressed back in time to that of a nine-month-old baby in California in December 1927, where he was raised as Al Bielik by Arthur E. and Albertina Bielik. So there you have it. Time travel, government cover-ups, Al Bielik. An interesting story. Um, to say the least, I don't particularly buy very much of it because none of his predictions have come true, and that's a good reason to discount someone who makes predictions. But it's an interesting story nonetheless. The Philadelphia Experiment is super interesting. If you've never heard of that, I encourage you to look it up. 
And that's our first paranormal story of the day. From the future, we go to the UK for our next story. Mom left terrified after chilling conversation with four-year-old daughter. She had a past life. A mom is going viral on TikTok after sharing the chilling memory her daughter claimed to have from a past life. Frederica Severinsen shared her story in response to a recent TikTok trend in which parents are sharing the time they realize their kids may be a psychopath. Severinsen's video might not fit that exact prompt, but it certainly left TikTok viewers feeling creeped out. Her clip, which has amassed nearly 700,000 views, began when Severinsen told her daughter that her friend was having a baby named Esther. Severinsen's daughter, who was four years old at the time, responded by saying she already had a friend named Esther, although their family didn't know anyone with that name. Oh, I know an Esther Mervyn, but she lives really far away, and she's in prison, Severinsen's daughter allegedly said. Severinsen was creeped out, so she scoured the internet for someone who had that name, but she couldn't find anyone. Then she checked Ancestry.com and found an Esther Mervyn, but she'd been dead for years. According to the video that Esther did live, far away in America, Severin lives in the UK, and she'd been in prison in the early 1900s. With that knowledge, Severinson asked her daughter how she knew Esther. This time, the four-year-old apparently said, Oh, it was a long time ago. She's dead now. And that was it, Severinson concluded. And I'm terrified of her. Needless to say, TikTok users were pretty freaked out too. Kids are scary, one user wrote. Oh my gosh, she had a past life, another added. Run for the hills, another wrote. Other users pointed out that the incident felt a bit flimsy, as it could have just been a coincidence. Still, the viral video added to the ongoing trend of parents sharing their kids' creepy behavior online. For example, another mom recently went viral after claiming her young son knew she was pregnant before she did. Yeah, that's pretty creepy, I'm not going to lie. If uh, my four-year-old, which I do have a four-year-old, was like, oh yeah, I know an Esther Mervin, and it turns out that Esther Mervin was a criminal in another country who had been locked up and died in the early 1900s, it would bother me. It would freak me out. Because something that four-year-olds tend to do is they tend to come in your room when you are sleeping and stand over your bed. And if I were to open my eyes and my four-year-old who told me that she had a friend who turned out to be a criminal who died in another country in a jail cell in the early 1900s was beside my bed staring me in the eyes in the darkness of night, I would be scared. Kids are creepy, man, for real. Look, I'm a parent. I got two of them. I love them to death. Uh, I've always said kids and old people are the creepiest parts of scary movies. No offense to any kids or old people who may be listening. So from the UK, we go to Roswell, New Mexico for our next story. Not of this world. Roswell Investigator's Journal reveals he found indestructible debris not made by human hands at alien crash site. In July 1947, a UFO reportedly hurtled into the ranch in New Mexico, and the most famous alien legend of all time was born. Soon after, the military sensationally announced in a press release that the remains of a crashed flying saucer had been discovered in the desert. The following day, however, the statement was retracted, and it was said to be instead a damaged U.S. Air Force balloon. The incident has become one of the most discussed and controversial U.S. UFO theories in history. Jesse Marcel, an intelligence officer of the 509th Bombardment Group at Roswell Army Airfield, was tasked with investigating the crash. Now, more than 30 years from his death on June 24, 1986, 
His grandchildren, Jesse Marcel III and John Marcel, claim he was ordered to deny what was actually discovered at the crash site. Speaking to the Daily Mail, his grandson, Jesse Marcel III, said, He was made to be the fall guy. He was the head of intelligence in Roswell, New Mexico, and followed his orders. In essence, he was at the heart of the story and the heart of the conspiracy, or the cover-up. The wreckage was first discovered by W.W. Mac Brazel, who spotted odd pieces of metal and debris scattered across Foster Ranch. Jesse Marcel III said even animals had a sense about whatever it was and did not want to go around it. He had examined the debris in the field and determined it was not made by human hands. Jesse Marcel III has revealed details of his grandfather's diary. Pieces of debris were taken to the Roswell base where a team tried to figure out what they were from. According to Marcel, some beans were etched with alien writing. Grandson John Marcel said he said there were glass fibers and fiber optics that may have been from the computers on the ship. When my grandfather came home with the debris, our dad looked through it with a shining light and saw a purple light inside with the symbol of a seal balancing a ball on its nose. Jesse added, my grandfather said you might be the first person on earth to look at alien writing. The fascinating diary will be revealed for the first time in a three-part series, Roswell, the First Witness on the History Channel, also known as the Alien Network, because all they have are alien shows. But that's okay, because we like aliens in the shed with Wes. The show follows the investigation of the Marcel children, along with former CIA operative Ben Smith, who was probably a paper pusher at the CIA, but whatever, the claim comes after extraordinary footage emerged reportedly showing an alien creature being carted away on a stretcher from the scene. The grainy video is alleged to have been shot in the Area 51 hangar and apparently films an alien being taken away. Meanwhile, the ex-head of Israel's space program says aliens are hiding among us but will only reveal themselves when mankind is ready. Hayim Ashid, 87, claims the extraterrestrial beings have struck a deal with the U.S. government to stay silent while they carry out experiments on Earth. I saw that a few weeks ago. Uh, that was really bizarre and kind of, like, surprising. This dude, Haim Ished, uh, he's not just some, some crazy man from some faraway place. He's not some guy in the desert that saw a light. Uh, he's the ex-head of Israel's space program, and he went on record saying that not only are aliens real, but they have been in contact with the U.S. government. That is a crazy claim. That is very interesting. This story is interesting. Uh, I've been to Roswell, New Mexico. It is a really cool place to go and visit. Uh, something happened there that we do not know about. That much is certain. The weather balloon story is not true at all. Uh, could it have been Air Force or military experimentation? Absolutely, especially during that time period. We're making a lot of advances. It could have been something that people had no reference for in their mind. Uh but there's no doubt that this guy, Marcel, uh, from the beginning, he had uncertainty about what it was that he was viewing and what he was investigating. And uh, his diary seems to show that, and his grandkids are convinced of it. So uh, is it proof of alien life? I don't know. Is it interesting? Yes. Yes, it is. So let us know what you think about that, what you think about the Roswell case, about aliens. Get at us at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. We will read your email on air. We go from Roswell, New Mexico, to parts unknown, or perhaps to Russia. The ghostly radio station that no one claims to run. 
In the middle of a Russian swampland, not far from the city of St. Petersburg, is a rectangular iron gate. Beyond its rusted bars is a collection of radio towers, abandoned buildings, and power lines bordered by a dry stone wall. The sinister location is the focus of a mystery which stretches back to the height of the Cold War. It is thought to be the headquarters of a radio station, MDZHB, that no one has ever claimed to run. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for the last three and a half decades, it's been broadcasting a dull, monotonous tone. We have actual recording of that tone. Would you like to hear it? That's it. That's the real tone. Every few seconds is joined by a second sound, like some ghostly ship sounding its foghorn. Then the drone continues. Once or twice a week, a man or woman will read out some words in Russian, such as dingy or farming specialist, and that's it. Anyone anywhere in the world can listen in simply by tuning a radio to the frequency 4625. It's so enigmatic. It's as if the frequency was designed with conspiracy theories in mind. Today, the station has an online following numbering in the tens of thousands who know it affectionately as the buzzer. There's absolutely no information in this signal, says David Stupples, an expert in signals intelligence from the City University in London. What is going on? The frequency is thought to belong to the Russian military, though they've never actually admitted this, which is totally unlike them. It first began broadcasting at the close of the Cold War when communism was in decline. Today it is transmitted from two locations, the St. Petersburg site and a location near Moscow. Bizarrely, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, rather than shutting down, the station's activity sharply increased. There's no shortage of theories to explain what the buzzer might be, from keeping in touch with submarines to communicating with aliens. One such idea is that it's acting as a dead hand signal. In the event Russia is hit by a nuclear attack, the drone will stop and automatically trigger a retaliation. No questions asked, just total nuclear obliteration on both sides. This may not be as wacky as it sounds. The system was originally pioneered in the Soviet era when it took the form of a computer system which scanned the airwaves for signals or signs of life or nuclear fallout. Alarmingly, many experts believe it still may be in use. As Russian President Vladimir Putin pointed out himself earlier this year, nobody would survive a nuclear war between Russia and the United States. Could the buzzer be warding one off? went online and watched videos in preparing for this podcast of the frequency and it is a buzzing noise and a couple of sounds together and then some words in Russian and it's kind of freaky and I don't know what's happening I don't know I don't know what's happening and our final story of the week as promised the single creepiest scariest thing that you will ever hear. Are you ready? I'm telling you, when I heard this, I was driving my truck, a 2017 Chevy Silverado, and I almost wrecked into the median. Since I heard this uh, about a year or two ago, I have not been able to stop thinking about it. If there is a moment right before I fall asleep where my mind is clear and at ease, this freaks me the heck out. Scientists have no idea why anesthesia works. I repeat, scientists have no idea 
why anesthesia works. The stuff that puts us to sleep that they have been doing since the 1800s, they do not know how it works. This is terrifying. If you're planning to have major surgery soon, you might not want to read this next sentence. Scientists don't actually know why general anesthesia works. Though some scientists in Australia think that they might be one step closer to the answer. I'm sorry, this is not a situation where we want a mite. You've been putting people to sleep for 150 years and you don't know how it works? You just be covering people's mouths with this little thing, breathe it in and they go out. They're like, ha ha ha, I see stuff and then they pass out. And then you do surgery on them. And you don't know why it works. You don't know how. You might be one step closer to figuring it out. Nah, shawty. You better figure it out before you put me to sleep. My daughter just had tubes put in her ears. They told me it was a, a very minor procedure. They gotta use anesthesia though. And you better believe I was thinking about this. Like y'all about to use this stuff on my child that you cannot even explain. You do not know why it works. We do know the basics. Breathe in, get knocked out. Another common option is to have the drugs introduced using an intravenous line. The knocked out part happens because the general anesthesia focuses your brain cells to communicate with each other less. If that sounds vague, too bad. That's all we know for sure. Or as the Mayo Clinic anesthesiology professor Dr. Bill Perkins put it in Scientific American, Precisely how inhalation anesthetics inhibits synaptic neurotransmissions is not yet fully understood. A.K.A. We don't know. We don't know why it works. That's what he's saying in proper scientific jargon. We don't know. We just use it on you and put you to sleep. Every surgery is a human experiment. How does this not bother you? This bothers me like for real, Shardy. This bothers me. This is crazy. Since his first use... In the 1840s, general anesthesia has been one of the greatest medical mysteries of our time. As io9 explained back in 2014, but scientists at the Queensland Brain Institute, which is affiliated with the University of Queensland, did some experiments that might shed some light on what exactly anesthetics are doing in our brains. This is so stressful to read. I'm having, like, an episode. The researchers use brain cells from rats and from fruit flies for their experiments. If it seems odd that fruit fly brains are being used in place of human ones, it's actually not that weird. Scientists use fruit flies to stand in for humans in these kinds of studies pretty often. And as Science Alert reported, humans have this protein too. What they found is that common anesthetics like propofol, that's what killed MJ, and etamidate appear to prevent a protein called syntaxin 1A from moving around the plasma membrane of a cell. Researchers already knew the mutations in syntaxin 1A made some fruit flies more resistant to anesthesia, but they weren't sure why. This paper shows that it might be because the anesthesia messes with proteins' ability to come together and form something called a snare complex. These complexes help tiny pockets of chemicals bind to the membranes of nerve cells, which is what has to happen if a nerve cell wants to send signals to other nerve cells with molecules called neurotransmitters. No snare, no signal. If we know exactly what anesthesia is doing, it might help us explain some of the side effects people experience when they wake up, the study author said in a press release. However, while the mechanism they found is a plausible explanation, 
the author notes that more research would be needed in order to prove that what they found in fruit flies is what's really happening in humans. Until that happens, the mystery of general anesthesia will continue to live on and will continue to haunt me all of my days. And because it haunts me, I have shared it with you, my tools. The next time you or one of your loved ones goes in for a very basic procedure and they tell you there is nothing to worry about, you will think about the fact that they do not know how anesthesia works. They just know that it works. They just know that if they give it to us, this magical thing will put us to sleep and will keep us from feeling the pain of being cut open and performed upon. Every time you're put to sleep, it is a human experiment. So say your prayers. Make sure you blessed up because you will be stressed up the next time that you have to endure such a thing. Scientists do not know how anesthesia works. I repeat, scientists do not know how anesthesia works. But they're going to keep putting people to sleep and charging you thousands and thousands of dollars to do it. And they can't tell you why. That is truly, truly some paranormal, freaky, freaky-deaky stuff. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here, and I can't either. It's back in the house, out of the shed, and through the rain for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 004. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, check in with college and NBA hoops, and explore whether or not the Titanic was sunk on purpose. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best news show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scouts. A meemaw. Oh, we made it.